Nearly 200 years later, we have yet to satisfy. Trains started the transport revolution that was later picked up by cars and planes, and the success of the Liverpool and Manchester ensured that the railways spread rapidly throughout Britain, and indeed the world. The railways took barely two decades to reach all but the most remote parts of the United Kingdom. But the railways were not just about enabling people and goods to get around more cheaply and rapidly than ever before. There are so many facets of modern life that they did influence, it is almost easier to list those that they didn't. This book focuses far more on all these developments than on the technological advances which made them possible. By the 1850s, people were flocking to the trains, taking advantage of guaranteed cheap third-class fares or the numerous excursion trains which gave them the first taste of the seaside. The railways enabled them to sample fish and chips in their hometown as well as by the sea and ensured that towns no longer had to have cows cluttering up the streets and the basements in order to obtain fresh milk. The railways changed the way business was conducted, leading to the creation of the firm as we know it today. Railway companies were, for a time, the biggest commercial concerns in the world. While initially there was a resistance in many rural areas to the advent of the railway, and some towns lost out as a result, by the 1860s virtually every town, village and hamlet was clamouring to be connected to this growing machine. Throughout the book I've tried to describe what travelling on the railway was like, as in the early days it must have been a pretty grim experience, without heating, lavatories, food or adequate lighting. Gradually the situation improved, as did safety, but at a pace that was rather too leisurely. The railways became universally used and enjoyed a brief heyday before the war intervened. All through the book, too, I have emphasised the political aspects of the railway and the role of the state, rarely benign and often, frankly, obstructive. Nowhere was this difficult relationship demonstrated better than by the two world wars where the railway's magnificent contribution to the war effort was inadequately rewarded by government. While many histories of the railways concentrate on the Victorian period of development and growth, I felt it important to celebrate the role of the railways throughout more recent history too. The interwar period of the Big Four is often perceived as another heyday, but perhaps the PR was better than the reality. And the reverse is arguably true for the story of British Railways, which was wrongly blamed for many of the calumnies inflicted upon it. The privatisation of the railways is covered in the last chapter, which also predicts that this 19th century invention has a strong role to play in the 21st century. I realise, too, that some of the information is patchy. There is more detail, for example, on the construction of the Forth Bridge and Settle to Carlisle Railway than on the Seven Tunnel or the West Highland Line, but that is inevitable given the space constraints. For some people, this book will be a taster to explore the rich literature of railway history. For others, it will be all they want to know about it, and indeed, perhaps a little too much. The book, therefore, is a myriad of compromises between information overload and conciseness, and I'm sure that many people will dispute my choices and wonder why I've taken the narrative down some strange branch lines, but hopefully that will not detract from getting as much enjoyment from reading it as I have had from writing it. Introduction. Why Railways? One of the least known facts about Louis XIV is that he had a railway in his back garden. The Sun King used to entertain his guests by giving them a go on the roulette, a kind of roller coaster built in the gardens of Marly near Versailles in 1691. 
It was a carved and gilded carriage on wheels that thundered down a 250-metre wooden track into the valley and, thanks to its momentum, up the other side. The passengers would enter the sumptuous carriage from a small building in the classical style that could lay claim to being the world's first railway station. Then three bewigged valets would push the coach to the top of the incline, giving the overdressed aristocrats a frisson as it whooshed like a toboggan down the hill. There were other, more prosaic railways in the 17th century too, mostly serving mines. Indeed, there had been tramways or wagonways for hundreds of years. The notion of putting goods in wagons that were hauled by people or animals along tracks built into the road is so old that there are even suggestions that the ancient Greeks used them for dragging boats across the Isthmus of Corinth. In Britain, the history of these wagonways stretches back to at least the 16th century, when, in the darkness of...